You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hannah supports her sisters. She's a source of money, encouragement, and advice, and seems to ask for nothing in return. In fact, she's so giving and self-reliant that her husband, Elliot, begins to believe that she has no needs. This seems to be the spark that ignites his infatuation with Hannah's sister, Lee. It also leads her sister, Holly, to rebel against what might be called Hannah's regime of care, only to marry another of her dissidents, her ex-husband, Mickey. Today, we discuss Woody Allen's 1986 classic and try to figure out why those closest to Hannah need to escape her goodness to find themselves, and whether a loved one can be too perfect for our own good. This is Wes Alwyn. This is Aaron Alonick. And you're listening to Subtext. So Aaron, the film is called Hannah and Her Sisters, and yet I'm not sure that we can make Hannah out to be the protagonist of the film in any typical sense. It is an ensemble film, so in a sense there are a lot of protagonists in the film, but the most passive of them all is Hannah. In that sense, she reminds me of Alyosha, say, and the brothers Karamazov, where not Mm. only he's the protagonist, but all the action and the bigger arcs happen for Ivan and Dimitri. So why is Hannah the center of the film and what role is she playing in it? We see other characters with their problems and arcs. We're introduced very early on to Elliot's, we're we're introduced in the very beginning to Elliot's infatuation with Lee her lack of a direction career-wise and unhappy relationship with Frederick, Holly's drug use and failing career and lack of a relationship, Mickey's hypochondria. Everyone has a problem, but Hannah, the accusation that's ultimately ultimately made against her is that she is too self-sufficient, doesn't have any needs, and maybe we could even say doesn't really have any problems. So why call this film Hannah and her sisters? Why not call it Lee and Holly and their sister? <laughs> Hannah. Their sister yeah. Hannah in parentheses. <laughs> and smaller font. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. I described her to someone the other day as the still center of the neurotic carousel. Um, Love it. Love that description. I, <laughs> that's great. That's so perfect. Um, she is like the unmoved mover in a way. Yeah. yeah, But I also, I don't know. I, I tried to be more critical of her this time around or to try to dig in a little bit. I actually think that, you know, the more critical of her, you can be the more likable she becomes, um, which is, you know, I think maybe central to this question of her lack of, of flaws, um, her passivity, whatever we want to call it. I started to see a little bit more, especially in the, in the Holly dynamic that she is, allowing herself to be manipulated, I think, in that relationship. And that this kind of mother-daughter dynamic, which is a little bit messy and a little bit screwed up, is, is I think, being fed in both directions, um, like any dynamic, right? I think that Holly is looking to disarm Hannah, you know, when she continually comes to her to ask for her money and support. I think there's a part of Holly that wants to be validated by Hannah, even though she knows maybe that she doesn't deserve this validation, right? But just in terms of the conversations around money, she says, you know, now don't get upset 
it encourages Hannah to then say, oh, you know, I know I never get upset about this, right? But it's a dynamic that kind of (laughs) reminds me of something that someone once did to me. In the middle of this big party, a party for me, they sort of dropped an emotional bomb on me and then said, you're such a wonderful person. So I knew I could tell you this and you would understand, you know? Mm -hmm. And that made me immediately feel like I could not, me not understanding would mean that I'm not a wonderful person anymore, right? (laughs) So I played along with it and only later realized what a huge manipulation that was, right? But it also came from my need to be thought of as a wonderful person. They murdered someone. Right. (laughs) And now you have to live with that secret forever. Exactly. It helped me understand, I think, some of what's going on in Hannah. I mean, does she have, she claims that she has enormous needs. Yeah. Does she? That's a great scene. She's accused by Elliot in that scene of, let's look at the actual dialogue, or really I have, I have it in my notes here. There's been two different, this is the second Thanksgiving, the tumultuous Thanksgiving. We see three Thanksgivings in the film, and Hannah and Elliot are fighting. And in a previous scene, she's been talking to Holly. Hannah's been talking to Holly because she's upset a script that Holly has written seems to be based on Hannah's life. And Holly seems to know far too much about Hannah's life. And that could have come only from Elliot, which of course means that it was fed to Holly by Lee. Mm -hmm. And this is the closest we get in the film to Hannah figuring out that she's been betrayed. So the upshot of the script is that she's too self-sufficient and has no needs. You're so giving and everyone relies on you, you know, and then I think Hannah says, you make it sound like I have no needs or something. You think I'm too self-sufficient. Holly, now Hannah, that's not what I meant. You know, everyone relies on you for so much. You're so giving. It's not a criticism. We love you. We're grateful. And Hannah says, you're grateful, but you resent me. And then Holly comes back with you and Elliot. You, you mentioned to me yourself that you and Elliot were having some problems. So Holly is trying to reassure her at that point that she understands that she's not completely self-sufficient. So this accusation that's there in Lee's, Holly's script, sorry, comes up again between Hannah and Elliot, where Elliot parrots those concerns. And obviously, you know, again, the script has been based on his report. Hannah asks him if he finds her too giving, too competent, too perfect, and Too disgustingly perfect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and ultimately, he said, it's, it's hard to be around someone who, who gives so much and needs a little in return. She says, I have enormous needs, which is the line that you just mentioned, which is an interesting way to put it using this word enormous. And then Elliot says, well, I can't see them and neither can we or Holly. This is really the climactic moment of the film, at least for Lee and Hannah and Elliot, these scenes at this Thanksgiving. So, so anyway, She has enormous needs, she claims, but does she? Well, earlier in that conversation with Holly, Hannah says that she has problems, you know, she sort of of admits to these problems, but she doesn't want to bother everyone. And Holly says, that's the point. I'd like to be bothered. These problems, of course, stem from the fact that Elliot is being kind of emotionally abusive to her, right? Because of the affair with Lee. And prior to that, Perhaps she really didn't have any problems, which is what caused Elliot to run into Lee's arms in the first place. I think that what's most interesting for me in in this scene, so we have this conversation with Holly and Hannah, 
Then we have an interlude in which the mother, I think her name is Norma, Maureen O'Sullivan, comes into the kitchen and praises Holly for her script and says that she loves the character of the mother who's just a boozy old flirt with a filthy (laughs) mouth, right? It's a minor moment and you think it's just a laugh line. In fact, I think it casts Hannah's reaction in a very interesting light. Hannah has a right to be upset, of course, by, by the content of Holly's play. But I think the contrast with her mother's maybe self-awareness or unselfconsciousness highlights Hannah's own need to control people's perceptions of her. Maybe this is why she refuses to share her problems with her sisters. In other words, she resents being perceived as having no needs, but she would do anything rather than admit a flaw or a lack that would produce a need. So maybe the question isn't, does Hannah have needs or not? Maybe the question is, will Hannah admit what those are and place herself in that position of vulnerability to allow other people in? Maybe this is all about image control for her, that she has to be the confident one, the one who takes care of everyone else, and the one who is perceived by others as being disgustingly perfect. (laughs) The sad thing is that the relationship between Elliot and Lee destroys Hannah's confidence in her own control over her situation, perhaps, which then produces in her the very vulnerability that she lacked in the first place that caused Elliot to go to Lee in the first place. There are many other causes as well, you know, especially Elliot's immaturity, right? But the conditions of the affair are such that it sustains the fallout, the emotional fallout then sustains the marriage for as long as it will work out. I think there's an open question at the end of the film as to whether or not this is a long-term solution, which we could talk about too. Yeah. I think that word control that you used is an important one because by being self-sufficient and not just self-sufficient, but the one that everyone relies on, she can control people in that way. Mm -hmm. And the way she controls them is not always to their benefit, or at least that's the accusation that Lee makes against her, I think, when they're in the restaurant. There's the scene when they're shopping when Hannah is very discouraging about, sorry, I'm saying Lee and I think I mean Holly. That's the accusation that Holly makes against her. There's the scene where they're shopping together and Hannah is very discouraging about the audition. There's the scene in the restaurant where they're all having lunch, I think, lunch or dinner together, and Holly is asking for more money. But now she wants to be a writer, no longer an actress. And Hannah is telling her to do something practical, do something productive, which would sounds like it would just mean having an administrative position somewhere and giving up her dreams. So Hannah herself is has been artistically successful. She was in the doll's house, right? She had a performance in that. I think the implication is that she's been successful as an artist, as an as an actress, and that her parents have it as well. The film begins with the parents being nostalgic. I think a lot of what happens at Thanksgiving and those celebrations involves, well, the father is playing at the piano and the mother is, at least in the end, she's boozing it up again. She has an alcohol problem, <laughs> falls <laughs> off the wagon. And by the end of the film, I think it seems to be okay, but that, that she's doing that, everyone has just accepted it. But the mother and the father seem to reminisce about the good old days and youth and possibility. And that kind of longing, by the way, is a very, it's the kind of thing Ibsen was, was dealing with, I think. So they've had their own success. They're longing, you know, they're nostalgic about it. Hannah has had it and she seems almost indifferent to it when she's being celebrated for her success. 
she says, well, you know, it's nothing. I'm just going to go back to what's important, which is my husband and family. So she seems to, things seem to come effortlessly for her and she doesn't seem to care all that much about those accomplishments, the things that everyone else is striving for and being really very neurotic about, whether it's work involving work or love, she seems to be very placid about. And I think it has something to do with her being having become a maternal figure in the family. You get the sense that because their mother is an alcoholic and is concerned primarily with being an actress, it seems that Hannah stepped into that role. And that means that she has been both sister and mother to Holly and Lee. And that's where some of these problems are coming from because on the one hand, she is the provider of resources. She's the nurturer. She's the one everyone can rely on. On the other hand, there's sibling rivalry. The sisters want to be like her. They want to reach her level of success. But she forecloses that in a way. She forecloses that by getting people to depend on her, by killing off their striving, by making them passive. She's a passive protagonist, but because she's already accomplished everything and is stable. The other protagonists are striving, but they, they're stuck in the sense that they've been possessed by her passivity. If they can rely on her, they don't need to go anywhere. She keeps them within the familial fold. So I think the accusations against her are apt in a way. The question of, of uh, A Doll's House and of her playing Nora is a really interesting one because, you know, of course that play is about a woman who seems to be the perfect housewife, but who, who walks out on that role in the end. And I think there's a question, just as there's a question at the end of the film, can this marriage between Elliot and Hannah really be sustained? I think there's a maybe a little suggestion that Hannah might walk out on that life that she's built at some point. Though I think this is staved off at the end because we're told that she's going to be playing Desdemona, I think it is, in a public TV performance. So she's gone back oh, right. to this, which I see as a really good sign, right? I think, you know, Hannah at the beginning is fascinatingly the opposite of Nora. So she was an actress who walked away from the stage, it seems, to become a mother and to want to go deeper into this, this motherly housewife role. I think it's really interesting when she describes this one temporary return she's made as Norris. It seemed to me that she had, she had a successful stage career. This whole first marriage with Mickey went on and this sperm donor best friend of Mickey who, who, it was, who fathered the, the twins. And then she seems to have also adopted other children. And then the second marriage with Elliot at some point, right, she's walked away from the stage and become a housewife. But this one temporary return that she's made to play Nora in a doll's house, she describes it as something that she had to get out of her system, which I think is a really interesting phrase because it's as though her own needs or ambitions are a kind of virus that has to work its way out. Mm. And I think considering what's happening at home and how overly responsive, which you know, I think is what we're suggesting, how overly responsive Hannah seems to be to everyone else's needs, one wonders if it would be better for her to have more of a stage career, right? To become a little bit more unavailable, to detach from the, you know, as I suggested, as a kind of mutual dynamic between her and especially Holly, in which Holly needs her approval and Hannah needs Holly to feed off of her approval. Detachment and becoming a little bit more of a career woman and thereby deflecting the attentions of the sisters 
being a little bit more unavailable to Elliot and having a different set of needs that come with needing to juggle her time better or feeling, I don't know, insecure about her line reading or you know, something that provides a little bit more interest and that isn't quite so dialed into everyone's emotions in the family and providing for them and being there for them and, and you know, wiping their mouths when they're done eating, et cetera, would be a good thing for her. And so hearing at the end that she's returning to the stage, I think is a positive indicator for the future of this marriage and for the dynamic among the sisters. If Hannah can just stay away from real life, everyone will start behaving. (laughs) Well, isn't that terrible that this is what I'm suggesting, right? You know, that everyone just needs her to, what, back off? I mean, I don't know that I agree with this as a solution, but I think that this is what the film is suggesting. (laughs) You know, that as long as Hannah's ambitions are being fulfilled and this overly mothering role is being thwarted, things are going well. I think there's something to that. I'm not saying it's, it's wrong, but it's also a little sad. Yeah. The interesting thing is that it's not that she's intrusive and smothering as a person. She's actually quite, I don't know, distant is not the word, but she's not an overwhelming presence. So the effect that she's having is somewhat subtle, maybe mysterious. She's, I called her the unmoved mover because, you know, as, as per Aristotle's description of God, because she's causing so much commotion to happen around her. How did you put it? The still center of the neurotic carousel. (laughs) (laughs) Neurotic carousel. It's just a great description of the universe as a whole as well. Um, So she creates all this motion in virtue of being unmoved. That's her power. There's power in not being reactive and so effective. There's power in her stability because it becomes something to emulate. It becomes something that will generate passion and idealism in other people. Oh, if I can only be like that, if I can only have that, if I can only get to that point where I'm that fulfilled and that complete and perfect as a person. But if she's too good, then it seems like something is unobtainable. And if she's too accessible, then again, you get it from her. You don't have to go out and emulate her anymore. You just rely on her, whether it's for emotional support or money or whatever. So that's the trick. So I think you're right about the going out and acting. I mean, as harsh as it may sound, I think you're absolutely right. She needs to enter the world of becoming. This is almost like the Christ moment, right? (laughs) You gotta gotta put the divine into the world to get to really get things going. But she needs to enter the world of becoming and desire and all the rest of it in order to release other people and give them some possibility of salvation. I like that a lot. You're reminding me of another moment where Holly tries to disarm Hannah, where she says, I have to borrow money. Don't get upset. You know, and Hannah says, I, I never get upset over that. Right? Exactly. And, uh, <laughs> it's such a defining moment. Yeah. I think I yelled at the screen like, maybe you should get upset, Hannah. You know? <laughs> like, maybe, exactly. Maybe that's exactly. what you need. Yeah. But have a little skin in the game. My God. Uh, she seems to have as much money as God, too, that she can keep funding these. Um, <laughs> well, her husband is a lowly financial advisor <laughs> at least he's a glorified, eyes, a glorified accountant a glorified accountant i know this this film a, a little too well and i know every every one of frederick's lines I, he's my I favorite wish I, 
I wish I were there with you. <laughs> um, so many great lines. Yeah. Well, let's shift a little bit because I think we're kind of glancing towards Elliot and I'm thinking about the fact that Elliot, this affair with Lee has unwittingly pushed Hannah into, as I already suggested, you know, the condition of vulnerability that Elliot seems to have found attractive in Lee. I suppose read in the most positive light, the emotional condition, the emotional state produced by the affair has forced Hannah to be honest about her own weaknesses, such as they are, and, and then allowed Elliot to return to her. But read negatively, I think we could say that this affair has actually just damaged and destabilized Hannah. And that Elliot, who is only attracted perhaps to damaged women, can therefore transfer his affections from Lee, who now has this professor that she's dating, and Lee seems to be coming into her own and becoming a little bit more confident, to the wife that he has now injured and caused to become damaged. I think that's right. You're reminding me of the standard job interview question, what's your greatest weakness? And you always have to say something that's not too genuinely <laughs> a weakness, right? You can't, well, I'm a drug addict and you know, otherwise I'll be a good worker. Right. You have to say something that is positive, like I'm such a perfectionist. And, and in her case, it's, you know, well, I'm just so perfect and self-sufficient and have no needs. <laughs> and if she can break down over that, so the reflection of perfection into itself becomes imperfection. Let's put that in a Hegelian way. <laughs> hmm. It's, it's uh, perfection in and for itself is no longer perfection. It's, well, maybe that's a reverse Hegelian. But anyway, by having that reflected back to her in a script and ultimately by Eliot, this idea that her self-sufficiency isn't the greatest thing for everyone around her, that's her arc. I mean, that realization is it. That's her climactic moment, just knowing that. And mm. in the external plot line, it doesn't mean a whole lot. Everyone gets, everyone finds someone. Mickey and Holly find each other. Lee finds the professor and gets away from Frederick. The parents who have been fighting seem more content with each other. And Elliot returns to Hannah. But Hannah is not finding anyone or returning it to anyone. She's just being herself with a little bit more insight into the effect that her perfection is having on other people. And I think, you know, if you think about Elliot, who seems Michael Caine has that kind of scumbag kind of edge to him in my view with <laughs> women <laughs> in films, just an edge, you know, he's a charming cat in one hand, but so it's a little bit different or it's a lot different, her effect on him and her effect on her sisters, her sisters. It's about being mother versus rival sibling with Elliot. You're always wondering in the film, really, is that, you know, your wife's too perfect? That's why you need to hit on her sister and become infatuated with her sister? It's really perverse and destructive. And in real life, probably just would be entirely destructive and nothing could ever come, come out of it that was good. It would just be ruinous and the, the truth would out and all of that. To the extent that the film is a little bit allegorical, we can accept it. But, you know, what is it that is really ailing him? as you put it, to desire. The thesis seems to be that for something to be desirable to him and perhaps to all of us, it can't be perfect and it can't be complete in itself. There must be some vulnerability there such that we can imagine the other 
desiring us back, needing us back. They can't just be an object of desire. They have to be a desirer. And that's what Hannah seems to lack. I love what you are saying about Elliot's real life application <laughs> would be destructive. <laughs> I, never, I never thought about that before. And I think that's absolutely right. I think that for him to embark on an affair like this in the first place would necessitate him being such a scumbag and so immature that he would never be able to have the redemption arc that the film gives him. But I wonder about this fine line maybe between vulnerability and being damaged. Does he need someone who is vulnerable and who will need him in return? Or does he actually need a, a woman who is damaged so that he can feel like a rescuer? That is, I think, a fine line. And we're all damaged to a certain extent. But I think that the extent to which he needs that level of imperfection or of difficulty is disturbing, which leads us into maybe a conversation about Lee, which I want to get to. But before I do, I was thinking about the fact that Mickey and Elliot kind of split the atom, if you will, of the Woody Allen persona in this, you know, but like the, normally. Before you go to that, I just want to stay on Elliot for one second, because you said something about, you reminded me of the fact that Elliot, there's a significance to his being a financial advisor because he is a provisioner of goods. And Hannah is the one who provides the goods. She's the source of goods and nurturance and all that. She's the big, she's the divine or the maternal figure. And he's the provisioner. And that's what makes him so lowly in a sense. This is what the stigma of just in this community of people who are artistic, of just being a financial advisor who's focused on money and the practicalities of life. Of course, he turns out to be very cultured. He's talking to Lee about, like he recognizes a Bach concerto. Is that what it is? Yeah. You know, and can name it. Most of the people in the film are very, very cultured, whether they're a financial advisor or not. And at a certain point, Mickey calls him a loser, which is an echo of Holly's accusation in the beginning of the film that a certain person that Hannah wants to hook her up with is a loser. And then in, in a climactic scene, you, all, you only hook me up with losers. The idea is that Hannah's goods are, aren't always that. She's foisting substandard goods on people. It turns out that this is the thing that Holly is going to have to get over. She's going to have to get over this idea that all these men who might actually make good partners are, are losers. And that's the only way she can end up with Mickey, who she's already rejected as a loser. And, in the past. But in any case, there's something to this idea that Elliot is actually a loser because he's successful in these more practical terms. And, and it's the domain in which Hannah functions as well. So she also functions as an artist. She has both sides. And the way he gets out, the way he transcends that position of being simply mundane and a provisioner of goods, the way he can be something more is to be involved in this fatuation with Lee in the first place and ultimately to induce some vulnerability in his wife or as you're putting it, damage. And I'm trying to think through the vulnerability versus damage question that you've raised. Does he need to damage her in order to feel like more than his handmaiden or his, you know, the provisioner of, of the goods that she has? But in any case, we could come back to, to that later. You were going to talk about the splitting of the, uh, yeah. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that maybe this is braided with that because one wonders what 
kind of appeal Elliot would have for a woman like Hannah. If we're to take seriously that Hannah is this great dramatic talent, which strains <laughs> credulity a bit for me because of her passivity and kind of her opacity, right? Like she's not... She's remote. Yeah. And she doesn't walk around like her mother does. The mother, I believe, could play a great stage actress who is extremely dramatic, right? And has a great deal of flair. The mother is histrionic and Hannah is the opposite of that. Right. And so I suppose I have trouble believing that Hannah has access to those parts of herself mm -hmm. for the stage, right? That she doesn't seem to have access to in her private life. Mm. But this question of losers, I mean, you know, Holly's right to suggest that Hannah is hooking her up with losers because Hannah's hooking up with losers too. You know, Hannah has terrible taste in men. What appeal does Elliot even have for her, for someone of her particular gifts. I, I struggle to, I mean, it's Michael Caine. Okay, sure. That makes it a little bit better. But prior to that, she was married to Mickey. And actually Mickey, in a way, because he's a writer for TV, makes a more natural kind of match for Hannah in terms of the fact that they're both involved in performing arts and right, a writer and an actress are a, a more natural combination than not. She seems to have gathered this collection of the dynamic in the relationship that Elliot needs is the wrong way around. So he's the loser and Hannah is here to rehabilitate everyone. What Elliot wants is to be in a position of superiority where he can be the rehabilitator, even if that means he's going to wound you to then rehabilitate you. But it seems that Hannah needs this dynamic even in her men of, of these losers, quote unquote, to help them along in their <laughs> development. Yeah, I think ultimately, as I, I guess I just said, Holly has to be less stringent in her requirements for men. She comes back to someone she's already rejected because she's so discriminating, let's put it that way. <laughs> uh, yeah. She hated Mickey and then they run into each other again and they turn out to be perfect for each other. They discover that they're perfect for each other. I think that's true for Holly that she needs to be less stringent. I think that, not that Hannah facilitated this, maybe if I really thought about it and could draw some sort of squiggly line back to her, <laughs> maybe I would find one. You know, Mickey did need to improve, right, in order for him to be in a position where he could be Absolutely, with Holly, yeah. right? Very, Just like Holly needed to find something that she could actually, you know, that actually resonated with her, something that she was really good at for her to be in a position to yep. find someone, right? So they both needed to improve. I don't know that we could say that Hannah facilitated that. Maybe she did by divorcing Mickey <laughs> and getting putting him in a position where he could find the right sister as, she as Mickey She works in mysterious say. ways, you know. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Asketh of Hannah and you shall receive it, even if it's her ex-husband. <laughs> Hannah from heaven. Uh, yeah, I don't know whether or not we can, we can make this argument that like she's rehabilitated everybody. Um, to shift a little bit just to this idea that like Elliot and, and Mickey normally would be fused together in a Woody Allen character. I, think, I mean, do you think that's correct? Like, the Elliot traits, so like the affair, you know, the desire to, the midlife crisis or something like that, which is represented by wanting to have this affair, escaping, impending old yeah. age, et cetera, would usually accompany the Mickey traits of the midlife crisis in the form of a crisis of faith and an obsession with death. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it's a big ensemble cast and it's amazing that the film can handle so many characters with their own arcs and do it so deftly. But as you point out, both Mickey and Elliot are in search of meaning 
and I suppose everyone in the film is in a way, meaning through love or work or some combination of the two, or in Mickey's extreme case, and I'm not calling religion extreme, but <laughs> or philosophy. Sure. In Mickey's extreme case, he has to go to the philosophy books and then to religion to try and solve his existential crisis, which is induced by his extreme neuroticism, his hypochondria, his brush with the idea that he has the quote unquote classic symptoms of a brain tumor, which turns out to be a ringing in your ear. <laughs> yeah. And then finding out that, in fact, he doesn't have a brain tumor, which turns out to be even more traumatic because then what's, you know, he came close and escaped death, but he definitely will die. So what's the point? A lot of echoes of Annie Hall on this film mm -hmm. and the typical Woody Allen shtick. So his existential crisis is more obvious and funny and expansive than that of the other characters in the film who all seem to be having their, you know, some variation on an existential crisis. And, and that's part of what makes him work so well in the film, even though for most of it, he's kind of at, on the periphery with his own narrative. He's on the sidelines until he comes in at the end. But his, his existential crisis is what the others are going through writ large. And I think mm. you're right. Elliot and him could have been combined might ordinarily have been combined but in this film Elliot is not the typical Woody Allen character just the fact that he's a financial advisor right Woody Allen is thought of the most sort of ordinary type of occupation for him he's wealthy he's successful he's even cultured he understands the arts he knows about the arts but he can't be an artist so that in this among this group of people Despite his success in practical terms, he's not necessarily going to be thought of that highly. He's in a, he's in a lower caste, in a sense. Hmm. And his problem, in his mind, revolves strictly around being enamored of being infatuated with this woman. It doesn't go so far as to, you know, he doesn't think, oh, should I really be a financial advisor? Or am I going to get ill? Am I going to die? Or any of the other, all of the neuroticism not all of neurotic there's plenty of neuroticism but yeah you know, the extreme comedic neuroticism that's mm -hmm. not there with Elliot he's kind of simple he's a simple guy in a way and the movie starts with his passion he's more straightforwardly passionate than I think a Woody Woody Allen type would normally be he can say god she's beautiful and he's complaining to himself in his mind about what's going on a bit he's smitten he's stricken but it revolves, again, strictly around the infatuation. And at the end, when things come full circle, he can be somewhat nostalgic about the relationship and say, oh, what was I doing? He says something like, I had the complete conviction that I, he's addressing her in his fantasy again at the end of the movie, addressing Lee in his fantasy. And says, I had the complete conviction that I couldn't live without you and put us both through the ringer. And Hannah, you know, I realized I love her more than ever. His choice is between security and love and maybe the boredom that that entails and then the excitement of infidelity and someone new, someone more flawed, I guess. So, yeah, I love the fact that you call him simple because that's exactly <laughs> my thought. You know, I hate that scene. I mean, I love it, but I hate it, you know. I hate that scene when he's uh in his you know, with his analyst and he says for all my education accomplishments and so-called wisdom, I can't fathom my own heart or whatever. And it's like, yes, mm -hmm. he can. 
You know, mm-hmm. he's just way simpler than he wants to admit. <laughs> <You know? laughs> he just wants to have his cake and eat it too. Just like any, you know, any of these guys that are just looking for some excitement and the convenience to at the end of, of this renewed happiness that he finds with Hannah. Of course, it coincides exactly with when Lee ends it. You know, he suddenly has this realization that he loved Hannah all along, which is so convenient considering that Lee has said at the, the middle Thanksgiving, I think it is, right? Is it the, the middle Thanksgiving scene, which occurs very late in the film, the two Thanksgivings back to back almost, you know, that she's found someone else and that she wants to move forward with him. Because by the time in the next Thanksgiving. That's the climax, really, of the film and the third act is that second Thanksgiving. Yeah. Both of the two final Thanksgivings are crammed together in the, in, the, in the third act. You're also kind of making me consider the fact that, yes, it's a large ensemble cast, but there's tremendous convenience in the fact that Elliot goes for one of Hannah's sisters and it's a film that revolves around the family, right? <laughs> so uh, everything stays within this, this large but sort of incestuous familial situation. I think the... Keeping it, keeping it in the family is a very efficient way to go as a lover or a filmmaker. <laughs> but go ahead. And one of the things you're reminding me of is the fact that I think Woody Allen has mentioned, I mean, obviously the film functions very novelistically with these title cards, which kind of divide mm-hmm. the film into chapters. And I read somewhere that he wanted to produce a film in film, the sort of effect that Anna Karenina's split has, where you have uh, Levin and his story, his crisis of faith, on the one hand, and then, you know, the dynamic with Karen and Anna and Vronsky, the love triangle in the other part of the, the novel. But what I find, you know, really interesting about the way that the film functions is that the family is kind of like its own tractor beam pulling everyone back in. I think there's something tremendously appealing about this family. So I understand it very well. Maybe they're not so appealing as I think. This is the reason why this is admittedly my favorite Woody Allen film is because I love this family and I love the fact that the film is built around these dramatic tent poles of the Thanksgiving scenes, which like anybody would want to go to these parties, right? But notably, of course, Mickey is absent from the first two Thanksgivings because he's outside of the family. And, you know, the relationship with Holly allows him to make an appearance at the final Thanksgiving scene to be pulled back in to the family, to the fold. And I wonder if Hannah, you know, comparing her to God, if she represents something that the family offers writ large, which is, you know, a sense of religious type belonging and community, which Mickey has been ostracized from. And and perhaps that's part of his whole Mm. mental difficulty in the first place. And then he finds his way back into community with others. Hypochondria is a very solipsistic kind of, you know, a mental problem. And so when he goes to the movie theater and has this first communal experience and sees what, but the Marx brothers, another family <laughs> on screen, it's just occurring to me, right? This is great. Yeah. He then is able to kind of rejoin the land of relationships, of re- relating to other people and of thinking about something more than just himself, even though he seems to have pretty humorous parents of his own. Yeah, no, that's very good. I didn't, I hadn't thought of that. The return to the family, to the community is the thing that he was looking for. Mm. I mean, how does he put it? He seems to solve his existential crisis before he runs into Holly again. And as you pointed out, in in a way, they, they both solve things 
And that makes it possible for them to get together. I'm just looking for the way he describes this. So this is, I was just going to give the moment where, so sort of the upshot where he says, what if the worst is true and there's no God and you only go go around once? Don't you want to be part of the experience? Stop searching for answers. And that you're never going to get and enjoy life while it lasts. And maybe there's something more and that maybe is a slim read to hang life on, but it's all that we, all that we have. Mm -hmm. So he's come to terms with this idea that he's not going to find an absolute answer that he can lean on. And there's a parallel, of course, to the sisters getting away from having to lean entirely on Hannah and be completely dependent on her. Mm-hmm. So there's the question here of autonomy and whether the search for meaning has to compromise that in the sense that you find an absolute belief that you immerse yourself in or whether you can believe to some extent or, or maybe even be an agnostic, which it sounds like what, what he's come to and still have what you need to live and keep moving and to be sustained, but not be weighed down, maybe not be sucked into the vortex, whether it's religion or whether it's the fantasy of being a great artist or the fantasy of love. All of those things have to be maybe have their proper place. You don't discard them, but they have to have their proper place in order to preserve some sort of autonomy. And then it's in that position that Mickey and Holly can find each other. Of course, Holly, you know, for Holly, it is success. I mean, it's it, maybe it's a bit different with her, right? Because she's finding success and that seems to be what stabilizes her. I don't know. I was trying to relate this back to what you were saying about community and family, because that is, you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to square these two things or maybe integrate them. Sure. So it's yeah, not I think- just, it's not just resignation to not knowing the answers to life. And it's not even just the realization that, okay, I found, I'm, I just have to find a good woman and that is the key. But I think, yeah, what you're saying about this larger idea of community is the key part. But go ahead. Yeah, I think red straight or maybe, you know, un- ungenerously, we can argue that, well, at the end of the film, everything's solved because everybody is now in a happy relationship, that that's all you need, right? Is to, as you suggest, to find a good woman. I think what that's really about is about keeping things in balance, maybe, right? That each one of these characters is neurotic because they're out of balance in some fundamental way. And that getting into this series of of relationships and of things, finding what it is that they need to satisfy whatever was, was out of balance in the various ways that you're suggesting stabilizes them in such a way that allows them then to relate to others and to have positive relationships. So that we're, what we're looking at is not the solution, but the post-solution state of affairs, right? These people have been able to work things out and therefore to be in, in good relationships yeah. with other people. Um, the person we haven't really talked about, though, that you brought up is Holly. I don't know that she wants... I mean, I think success is, is certainly a word for it, right? But I think that she feels inadequate. That's you know, her fundamental problem. Lee does too, to a certain extent, right? But I think Holly really, really feels inadequate. And I think the cocaine addiction is maybe, you know, a symptom of that problem, something like a desire for self-sabotage being expressed in that, right? So she's on this continual quest to find herself, 
and is taking all these detours to try to do that and maybe to kind of prevent herself from being found, if you will. And the detours also require that she's constantly in debt to Hannah, which is the exact situation that she doesn't want to be in. She doesn't want to be beholden to Hannah. She wants to be out on her own, but she keeps putting herself in the situation where she needs Hannah and perpetuates the sort of self-hatred cycle there. And so I think that what she gets in the end or what qualifies as success for her in the end is just having found something that she is good at, having found a role that she can play that will fulfill her, keep her out of the clutches, the maternal clutches of Hannah and standing on her own two feet yeah, and give her something that she can say is her domain, independent of everyone else. Yeah, through most of the film, you just get the sense that she is just going to be this tragic, self-destructive character. Mm. And that she's has these pie-in-the-sky, impractical ideas that she's getting money for. One minute, it's catering. The next minute, well, it's, it's also acting at the same time. And then, no, I'm not going to be an actor. I'm going to be a writer. It's like that Arrested Development moment where <laughs> Tobias, <Yeah. laughs> you know, I'm going to be an actor. And then the, the little giggle afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> but... You know, it's a nice touch to the film that this actually turns out to be a real calling for her, that she actually turns out to be a good writer and that she hasn't just been searching in vain or being naive and unrealistic in the pursuit of her dreams, that she has just been temporarily down and out. So I'm trying to think through whether it's success that is transformative for her or if so what that means exactly is it because she's because for the average person the idea that they need to be a great this or that especially a writer or a actor is not the most practical <laughs> solution for her life sure. and perhaps one you know look at a film like this and be look at it quite skeptically but I think the what I was getting out of what you were saying was it's not that per se it's just the the fact that 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 for her turned out to be a grounding thing, not because she turned out to be the greatest writer necessarily, but because she found her independence through it. And, you know, she could have found her independence through any number of different avenues and, and channels, but it just happened to be that one. And I think that's right. Yeah, that idea of independence too. I'm thinking about the fact that she's hooked up with April for so much of the film. Um, <laughs> yeah. Right, like... Carrie Fisher being very, very uh, underhanded. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, it's hard to hate her. We see that Holly and is... called April, I, and it's an interesting... It's, yeah, but anyway. Oh, why? I don't know. I, I just thought there must be something to the fact that it's April's the cruelest month or something. Or the oh, nice, nice. Spring, springtime and... Holly's winter Christmas yes. dead. <laughs> yes, exactly. Mm, that's interesting. So April is... The thaw, maybe, I don't know. But yeah, Steele's, what's his face? Yeah, Sam Waterston. Sam Waterston, what's his name? David, Rick, David. Richard, David. David. Yeah. <laughs> so yes, Steele's, you know, wins the, you know, steals the audition, steals David, just really, wow. Very destructive relationship. They're very competitive with each other, obviously. And then I wondered this time around if David, you know, when they first meet him, I thought, is he negging them? Because remember when he, when he asked them, 
he, he compliments the, their food, but then he asks them if this is their first catering gig. Well, also he says you're you're far too attractive to be caterers. Yes, right, which right. is like a perfect neg. Yeah, yeah. So you know he's um, he's kind of terrible and exactly the you know the wrong guy for Holly. It's lucky for her that he can identify his prey, identify vulnerability, and knows how to exploit it and takes them both out on a double date. <laughs> oh my God, that is the worst. That is just the worst. I, and also the best. I mean, I love that montage of buildings over box double violin concerto. It's sublime, but... And then April saying something intelligent <laughs> about architecture. And then the whole thing about who's going who's gonna to be dropped off first, which is really wonderful. Oh, yeah. Meanwhile, I don't know how anyone could make... Carrie Fisher look that unattractive, but they manage it. She looks like she's that scene. Is she wearing like a like a flight cap or is that what that's called? Or the garrison cap that she has? She looks like she's parachuted over enemy lines or something. And she's wearing that cap and the the leather jacket combo. It's so bad. Anyway. Oh really? That scene is so painful when she's when Holly is sitting in the back seat and we hear her voice over after it's been decided that they're gonna drop Holly first. And she makes that comment about regretting telling some roller skating joke about the Guggenheim, which <laughs> yeah, sounds, yeah. actually sounds like a really cute, <laughs> cute joke. And she calls herself a loser in this scene too, by the way. Yeah, go ahead. She puts herself down. I find it very, very painful. She says she can't tell jokes that only her mother and Hannah can, but she kills them. Yeah, it's just obvious that she hates herself. She says she'll go get into bed and just take an extra second all or whatever, which is like, okay, Judy. Um, that's <laughs> pr- <laughs> pretty distracting. Well, at that point, she's trying to comfort herself. Yeah, oh, I'll just go have some me time with some drugs. But. Yeah, right. You know, maybe that's a, maybe it's okay that she pulls herself out of it. Maybe that's actually indicative of the fact that she'll pull herself out of the situation in the end. But I, I just find that really difficult to watch that whole scene. And it's an interesting counterpoint to Lee's little reflection in the cab where she's just been, where she realizes that Elliot has been flirting with her earlier in the film. Yeah, Lee's kind of the worst because she knows, she's known this whole time. And she's even lying to herself in voiceover. That's how I'm reading that. This is actually what I would call the inciting incident of the film where it's about nine minutes in and she's, you know, Elliot has a crush on me. I wonder if he and Hannah are happy. And she has a buzz from flirting. That's, that's the key thing and complains about Frederick. And but if you watch that first scene, this is, this is why I think Lee is so, so not innocent. I, I won't call her guilty, but we see how subtly Lee is keeping Elliot interested in her, right? She praises him for the attention he pays her by suggesting some book that she was meant to find particularly meaningful, right? And then maybe she's not entirely aware of it herself, but she puts this image of her naked portrait into his head. I find that to be extremely inappropriate to do to your brother-in-law, <laughs> right? And so I think she knows, she knows and she doesn't know. I think Lee is an interesting character because I think that for someone who is a recovering alcoholic, she acts as though she's still an alcoholic, I think. She, she acts um, anesthetized. I think she's numbing herself with men now rather than with alcohol. And she, she gets off on this idea that she's the muse to uh, you know, a competent male artistic figure. I think that's the only way she knows how to relate to fellow artists in a way that doesn't uh, put her in competition with Hannah, maybe even kind of reflects the relationship with Hannah in which 
she can be the pretty sister, the beautiful sister that maybe Hannah draws upon in her, imagining this, of course, in her dramatic performances, perhaps. It's interesting to compare Lee and Holly. In a way, they are in very similar positions because they're not successful with in, in work or love, but it's manifested actually in very different ways. So Holly has ambitions. She just is not making them work out. Whereas Lee still doesn't know, know what she wants to do when she grows up and is talking about taking courses at Columbia. Holly is looking for a man. Lee has one and he's seems to be a very well-respected artist, but also he's an asshole. <laughs> so or maybe not an <laughs> asshole. He's curmudgeonly. We'll just call him curmudgeonly. So he's, he's curmudgeonly right. <laughs> and older and doesn't want to be around people. So she has a, in that relationship, she has a kind of problem on her hands, but she's not as neurotically wound up as Holly. She's not bouncing all over the place. I like the, what, the way you put it. I think you said anesthetized. Mm-hmm. I had a similar, she's got kind of a dreamy quality, got a kind of a sedated quality to her. She's happy just to be attracting men and doing that as her she doesn't seem to be thinking too hard about what she wants until she's knocked out of her orbit with Frederick by what happens with Elliot. And then she can, it seems like that's the jolt she needs. And so she can actually go to school and meet a professor she likes and kind of move on. But she is, yeah, she's on autopilot until some external eventuality can, can jolt her out of that. Yeah, I think. You know, as far as Frederick is concerned, I'll give him credit for the fact that he, you know, he says something really annoying, like he's in this period in his life where he just can't be around people, you know, which is eye roll. But, um, <laughs> but he has the self-awareness to know that and therefore to stay away so that he doesn't become un- unpleasant to people. So I'll give him that. You know, he really has no right to be with Lee for a lot of reasons, but he's extremely perceptive and obviously very, very brilliant. And he's, he's Max von Sydow on top of everything. <laughs> he's, he's an artist and he's Max von Sydow. Um, I really find that. a name like that. that. <laughs> yeah. It's a great name. It's, it is a great name. I find the scene when he immediately perceives the affair and the contrast between his reaction to that and Elliot to be chilling. And I, I think he... Frederick is an extremely sympathetic character in that moment. It's just a heartbreaking scene. Yeah, I think Lee has just been walking in the rain and she comes back to Frederick having just watched the television show about Auschwitz. <laughs> yeah. Is that what we're talking about? And then she, he starts lecturing her about, you know, the question isn't why, how did this happen, but why doesn't it happen more often? A little bit of the voice of Woody Allen there. And then he says it does in subtler forms, which I think we can infer he's talking about the way artistic vitality maybe is squashed by the world. You, mm. know, you could hear him going off on capitalism or something as well. So he gets, goes, you know, the whole culture, people watching wrestler or preachers and, and she tells him to lighten up and doesn't want to listen to one of them. You know, she's not in the mood for his reviews of contemporary society and then he says this very condescending thing which is not actually very sympathetic about completing the education he started five years ago maybe maybe it is sympathetic in a sense that he sees his role as limited he he knows she's going to leave him one day he says that several times right i 
I always knew you were going to leave me. And he, he sees, what does he have to offer? Well, he has to offer this education. And once that's over, right, there's nothing to keep her there. And he even says, you know, when you leave the nest, I want you to be able to face the real world. It's like he's preparing a child mm-hmm. to, to leave home and, and preparing himself for inevitable loneliness. So I think you're right that, you know, the moment it's very touching when, when he says, I always told you, you would leave me. Does it have to be now? You're my whole world. You're my only connection to the world. But I think the other interesting part of that is this contrast that Woody Allen is creating between the, between artistic passion or real like deep engagement with artistic ambition and being part of the world being connected to the world, being Mm. able to enjoy ordinary things, being able to be more like Elliot in a way and just inhabit the mundane and tolerate the fact that rich people want to match your paintings to their couches (laughs) and all of that stuff. So, you know, I think that's a dilemma that that is often somewhere in the shadows in many Woody Allen films, this worry about the conflict between the social social connection and being in the real world and then being an artist and often la la land and how do you reconcile the two you get a little bit of that you get a kind of a hint of that in this film in the in the character of frederick and more strongly i think you get it in holly because she seems to be floundering because she's devoted to the idea of becoming an actress at first and then and then a writer mm. but on the other hand you have characters like Mickey and Hannah who have done very well for themselves as artists not just you know succeeding from the standpoint of status but obviously from the standpoint of financial success and self-sustainability so it's an interesting I don't know what else to say about that that question seems to come up in Woody Allen films despite the fact that Woody Allen himself obviously saw so much success as an artist and often has characters that are much like him in his films who are enjoying the success of being a (laughs) TV producer or whatever, a comedian or TV producer and some other kind of artist that could write there in the film. Yeah, I think Frederick, though, is an extreme case of the artist. You know, he's the, you know, the solitary figure on the mountaintop. (laughs) You know, I think his level of Mm -hmm. artistry we're meant to see as being above the more quotidian success of a, of a TV writer, uh, you know, which is by definition, I think, more engaged, obviously, with people. And it has to be yeah, responsive great, to standards and point. practices. Yeah. Right, yeah. Right, um, right, and, excellent, yeah. And uh, same thing with Hannah, though. Hannah is a little elevated from Mickey because she's in the theater, right? Frederick is in, in a category all his own. I, I think it's, that's going to be more fraught. And the nature of painting is so solitary. I think that what you're talking about with this moment, uh, the the poignancy of this moment with Lee is that he does have this realization that he needed to be more engaged in the world, but he has it too late, right? He says, God, I should have married you earlier or or right away or something like that when you wanted me to, right? He should have, you know, in this Hannah way, right? Put some skin in the game. He should have entered into the Mm. world of becoming. Is is that right? Um, (laughs) The way you put it. Right. He, he should have, he didn't, he stayed in this realm of ideas with Lee and now he pays for it. Of course, in the end, when we see the guy that Lee is with visually, you immediately see that that is working and that's the right guy for her. Right. The fact that 
Frederick is so much older and, you know, kind of odd looking in his great <laughs> um, Max von Sydow way is... Uh, Can- cantankerous. Yes, yes. It's a visual mismatch as well as a, you know, v- visually it's it's doing some work, I think, to show us how, how mismatched they are um, in reality as well. Uh, the kind of concern that, you know, Woody Allen doesn't have when he's matched up with <laughs> actresses. <laughs> um, so we see that that was wrong. But but I, I suppose, yeah, the poignancy of that moment comes when he realizes that he should have invested more in reality and less in this this realm of ideas. And his pain the depth of his emotional pain is a, you know, as I think I mentioned before, is a really stark contrast to when you cut to Elliot going home and sleeping next to Hannah, thinking like, oh, Lee, what a volcano. Wasn't that a fulfilling experience? You know, he does subsequently have, you know, a, a crisis where he wants to call her and break it off, right? Um, mm-hmm. but, he, but he has to kind of work his way there. And the you know, self-satisfied little voiceover coming on the heels of Frederick's pain, deep pain, is um, you see how small and simple Elliot is, uh, right? And how truly superior Frederick is, I think. Um, Yeah, that's a very good, those are very good points, yeah. Do not reduce him to just being the the curmudgeon. He's definitely more substantial mm. and ultimately more of a mensch than, than Elliot. Yeah, I think that's right. But- so I think it's time to move to postscript. What what are we going to okay. talk about in postscript? Maybe the parents. We didn't get to the parents sure. that much. Let's um, talk about the parents. All right. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you to everyone who listened to this episode. To get ad-free episodes and episodes of our after show postscript, please subscribe at patreon.com slash subtext. Also, this podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to other Airway shows, like Good Job Brain, a podcast that's part quiz show and part offbeat trivia, and Big Picture Science, which engages the public with modern science research through smart and humorous storytelling. That's airwavemedia.com. 